Ready? Born ready. It's here. It's another episode of your favorite political podcast, Where the Party At. I am your host, Saba Long. Another week, more crazy news. Let's dive right in. Let's, as always, start with the ATL. Something major happened. Atlanta Medical Center, which is a level one trauma center, announced that they are closing November 1st, so even before the holidays. And I really can't explain to you just how big of a deal this is, but I'll try. So what is, you've probably heard this phrase before, level one trauma center. What is that and why is that a big deal? So if you ever watch like Grey's Anatomy, it's like the hospital on that show. They can do everything. 24 hour care, specialized surgery, critical care, teaching and research, all of that. So if you're severely injured, car accident, get burned, you know, fire, like all those types of major, major deal issues, you go to a level one hospital. Now, a level two hospital, they also have 24-hour care, but things like a heart surgery, that's more than likely going to get referred to a level one hospital. So what does it mean that Atlanta Medical Center is closing? It means that Grady Hospital is the only level one trauma center in the metro area. The other level one trauma centers in Georgia are in Augusta, Macon, and Savannah. So Grady Hospital, of course, is pissed about this. And here's part of what they said in a statement. And I quote, Grady is really the only true safety net in Georgia, and it runs over capacity daily. And this decision by Wellstar, that's who owns Atlanta Medical Center, to abandon the community will further strain our operations particularly our emergency room, as more patients will be present with medical needs. We have seen a significant increase in emergency rooms visits since Atlanta Medical Center South closed, which will be further exacerbated once the downtown location is closed. So what does this mean politically? Mayor Andre Dickens is asking to meet with key leaders from Wellstar by September 16th, so that's coming up pretty quickly. And you, I mentioned in Grady's statement, Wellstar had closed the ER and the hospitals at the South location, which is in East Point. And so a lot of those patients at the East Point facility were on Medicaid and Medicare. So the big political question here is, would the hospital have stayed open if Governor Kemp had expanded Medicaid? Now, a number of Southern states, I think it's about 12 have refused to expand Medicaid, and they view this as a partisan situation. Now, if it were to be expanded, 500,000 Georgians would gain access uh, to Medicaid coverage. Now, Wellstar said it would have helped if the governor expanded Medicaid, but it probably would not have prevented them from closing the hospital. Now, I just... That might be true, but I also can't imagine that Wellstar's management would actually throw Kemp under the bus during an election year and say, oh, yeah, Kemp refusing to expand Medicaid is a big reason why we're closing. So in the past 10 years, eight rural hospitals have closed in Georgia. 
And then you've got the South location of Atlanta Medi Medical Center closing. And then now the Metro Atlanta location closing as well. At a time where I feel like people are more and more unhealthy. There's like more and more issues going on between cancer, diabetes, just all these types of diseases, more and more car accidents. There's just more and more gun shootings. There's a lot going on. And then, of course, you know, a freaking pandemic. All right. On to some other Georgia news. We have gained more than 1.5 million new voters since the last gubernatorial election in 2018. And these are some numbers I was really shocked by. The number of Hispanic voters has grown by 49%. And the number of Asian voters has grown by 43%. And then more than half of these 1.5 million voters are all under the age of 35. Now, y'all always hear me say this on the show, and I legit mean it. Young voters, so folks under 40 or 40 and under, like you all can fundamentally determine the future of our state. Like fundamentally, you have the power to determine who will be the next governor, the next senator, the next secretary of state, the next labor commissioner. All of those things, the 40 and under group can determine it. And it doesn't have to be what consistently happens, which is the 65 and older group is the ones who are always determining the future of our state. All right. So you all know we released the show on Tuesdays. So Monday was Labor Day. So of course, we've got to get in some labor news. A few key points here. Gallup issued a poll and showed that Public support for unions has hit its highest point since 1965. Respondents approve of unions by a 71 to 26 margin, which is pretty doggone high. And then, although this is partisan, even still, Republicans support unions at a level of 58%. Democrats by 89 and independents at 68. Really strong numbers. And then even self-described conservatives, right? So not only just are they Republican, but they describe themselves as a conservative. They back unions at a level of 54%. Interesting. And then one key stat here, 58% of folks who are working but are not part of a union express zero interest in joining a union. Why are people joining unions? Here are some of the reasons. Better pay and benefits. Uh, workers' rights and representation, job security, better pension and retirement benefits, and then things like health and safety protections at work. So the National Labor Review Board, uh, NLRB, issued a formal complaint alleging that Starbucks has withheld pay raises and other benefits from stores that organized across the country, including three in Georgia. Not a surprise here. The Howell Mill store, which is the Howell Mill Starbucks store, is one of many stores across the country that on Monday hosted something called a Labor Day sip-in. Starbucks founder and CEO Howard Schultz is stepping down again, and they're bringing in a new CEO. If you might recall, Howard Schultz has been, you know, was seen as like a progressive CEO, but the unionization effort has maybe made him quite not seen as so progressive as he probably sees himself as trying to protect the company. But as a result of things that he has said and done and just kind of the culture at Starbucks, 235 stores have unionized. Now, when we first started talking about this, 
I think there were somewhere in the range, we would have to like pull the archives, but somewhere in the range of like 30 stores. And so like in a matter of months, this is just snowballed. So we'll see what happens. One of the tactics that Starbucks is using is that they're closing stores or they're distributing unionized workers across other stores so that they can't, you know, form a collective union. They're also refusing to, to bargain with them, right? So they're refusing to sit down with them. And another company is doing the same thing. Amazon is fighting to overturn the union vote for the warehouse store, the warehouse in Staten Island. That's the one that Christian Smalls made was made famous by. And so Amazon is accusing the NLRB of favoring the Amazon labor union. And the company has filed an appeal of the union vote. Now, a federal labor official presided over the hearing of the case, and that official has recommended that Amazon objections be completely rejected and that the union vote be certified. And normally the NLRB will sign on to whatever is recommended by the federal labor official. So Amazon has until September 16th to file its objections and try to convince the NLRB to take its side. But based on what's happened so far, I think it's probably safe to assume that Amazon is going to lose the case and they're going to be forced to begin negotiating with the union. But even still, again, just like with Starbucks, time is on these companies' side and they will probably continue to slow walk uh, everything and try every move possible before they actually get to the point of unionization that are negotiating. Because then, you know, it's you just think about you know, wearing, when you're wearing down someone in an argument, right? And then over time, they just get sick of it and walk off. And that's a similar tactic going on here. Then Apple, workers at an Oklahoma City Apple store are planning to host an election. So far, only one Apple store has voted to unionize. Now, yeah, I may have mentioned on the show before, the one that would have been the first was Cumberland Wall in Cobb County, but they decided to pause the election. Now, earlier this year, Apple bumped the starting hourly wage from $20 to $22, which is not insignificant. And then as a comparison between Apple, workers at the dollar store in Louisiana are trying to make changes happen without unionizing. They're being paid $9.25 an hour, huge difference from Apple's $22. $22 and far below the $15 minimum wage that a lot of people have been organizing around. So earlier in the pandemic, one of the workers at the dollar store, she got an op-ed published in the New York Times and she called the company out for not fitting their stores with plexiglass and offering personal protection equipment. And since it was in the New York Times, the company was shamed into doing the right thing. And so I, I use this as an example of using the power of public and just like really smart tactics to change corporate behavior, even if you're not quite sure if you're ready to unionize, there are still ways that you can work with management and affect change. And then the last thing on the union front, the AFL-CIO is organizing 100,000 volunteers to mobilize voters ahead of the midterm elections. Curious to see how that ends up and if these folks end up voting uh, Democrat because the NLRB has been very pro-union under the Biden administration. And we'll see if that ends up being reflected in Democratic votes. All right. I want you all to hear a snippet of an interview. Former Attorney General under Trump, Bill Barr, 
did on Barry Weiss's podcast. So she opens this podcast with a quote from Bill Barr's wife. Take a listen to this. The left and the press have lost their minds over Trump, and Trump is his own worst enemy. Any sacrifice you make will be wasted on this man. That's what she told you in 2019 before you joined the Trump administration. Obviously, you did it anyway, which is why we're here to talk. But was she right? Yeah, she, she as usual, was, was dead on. You know, the left has lost their mind over Trump. Trump derangement syndrome is a, is a real thing. But, you know, Trump is his own worst enemy and, and has provoked a lot of the venom and in fact, he's incorrigible. He doesn't take advice from people and he does his own thing. And you're not going to teach an old dog new tricks. So I was under no illusion when I went in. But I felt, you know, there was a chance he would rally to the office and. Always listen to your wife, folks. Facts on facts. <laughs> All right. They also went on. And this is a very long interview. They went on to talk about. Trump's immediate reaction to the 2020 election, and then also Trump's grip on the Republican Party. Are the Republicans willing to just say it plain and straight? Because of the, the tactic that, that, that Trump is using to exert control over the Republican Party, which is extortion. If, if it's not me, I'm going to ruin uh, your election chances by, by you know, telling my base to sit home and I'll sabotage whoever you nominate other than me. And, you know, that, that shows what he's all about. He's all about himself. Well, I know you weren't a never-Trumper. And then <laughs> he was asked if Trump was worth it in the, at the end. And he said yes because of the Supreme Court picks and it explained his answer to this question that I would allow sit back and be happy with a progressive Democrat winning. So 2024, we have Biden v. Trump or Kamala v. Trump, or Gavin Newsom v. Trump. You're voting Trump. Right now, I would say yes. Is there anything that could happen to change that? <laughs> you know, I don't want to speculate about what might happen to change it. We'll have to see some, you know, some some of the way these investigations turn out. There are so many Republicans who I think that answer is the same for, which leads me to go into President Biden's speech. So President Biden gave the speech in Philadelphia a Thursday of last week. He called it a speech on the continued battle for the soul of the nation. If you remember, he, Biden campaigned on this in 2020, a return to normalcy and to civility. And what I found interesting about Biden's speech is most of the TV networks did not cover it. They said it was political in nature. So I don't know how many people actually end up seeing it. I was, I was not able to see it in real time. I was doing something else, but I did go back and watch it just for you, just for the show. <laughs> so given what you heard from Bill Barr, I want you to take a listen to some of the clips from the opening of Biden's speech. With my whole soul. But first, we must be honest with each other and with ourselves. Too much of what's happening in our country today is not normal. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. 
Now, I want to be very clear, very clear. But there's no question that the Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And that is a threat to this country. These are hard things. But I'm an American president, not a president of red America, blue America, but of all America. And I believe it's my duty, my duty to level with you, to tell the truth, no matter how difficult, no matter how painful. And here, in my view, is what is true. MAGA Republicans do not respect the Constitution. They do not believe in the rule of law. They do not recognize the will of the people. They refuse to accept the results of a free election. And they're working right now, as I speak, in state after state, to give power to decide elections in America to partisans and cronies, empowering election deniers to undermine democracy itself. MAGA forces are... So if, you, if you listen closely, there's not much of a difference between what President Biden said and what Bill Barr said in the interview with Barry Weiss. One of the things that Biden does is he very clearly and publicly acknowledges the civil war that's happening within the Republican Party. There's this ongoing never Trump wing of the party that's battling the Freedom Caucus folks. So think Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jim Jordan, Matt Gates. You know, the loud and in-your-face uh, folks and the quote-unquote sensible Republicans are being drowned out and they feel like they don't have a voice in the party. In response to the FBI retrieving documents from Mar-a-Lago, Trump's house, Marjorie Taylor Greene called for the FBI to be defunded. I mean, she literally called to defund the police and the irony on that is not lost on me. MAGA Republicans have promised to call for Biden's impeachment if Republicans win back the House in November. In fact, here's a clip from Steve Bannon's show just over the weekend. This was uh, filmed at a rally in Pennsylvania, a MAGA rally. Uh, Trump spoke in Pennsylvania a couple days ago. Take a listen to this. We need to do because we need everybody at the ramparts. How many right now are precinct strategy or how much are going to go to become precinct men to get engaged and help take over the Republican Party. Okay, question from Steve to everybody here. How many of you are precinct committee men or how many of you are going to become precinct committee men to take over the Republican Party? I, we already had one. She had the, oh, right here. We've got one, precinct committee. Okay, precinct committee, we got one, two. I'm a precinct committee. Judge of elections, we got three. And I ran for state committee, but we got two people in out of 16. We ran against the swamp. Okay, so we got four. Anyone else? And if you if you aren't yet, you got to do it. This is the key, guys, and to the audience out there. Steve says it every day, but this is the key. You can't just come out here and fly your flags. You got to go home and get involved. You got to get in the fight. Knock on doors. Knock on doors make phone calls. Go to the elections offices. Take over the Republican Party. We have to MAGA the Republican Party. Vote on election day. So if you thought President Biden was exaggerating or just flat out lying, that is proof that he was exactly right. And that what Bill Barr said on Barry Weiss's show, again, was exactly right. The Steve Bannon wing of the Republican Party, the MAGA wing, is doing everything they can to transform and take over the party like kudzu. And, you know, the onus is really on Republicans who are 
maybe afraid to say something or afraid to stand up for their party. But the Republican Party, as it stands today, is completely unrecognizable. Are some of those MAGA people the Tea Party people? Because this yes, sounds very yes, reminiscent. Yes, it is. To like yes, tea exactly. Party it's tea, it is Tea Party on steroids. Yes, and that was born out of the Obama administration in retaliation to Obama. Uh, Bannon and others on his podcast have also said there is no room for compromise with Democrats. And I think they would probably say no room for compromise with Republicans that they believe are not representative of the party as they see it or the party that they want to build. And so you're looking at a completely fractured Republican Party. Uh, You're looking at a significant amount of people in the country who don't believe what's in front of them, right? And it's it's a scary world, what you see there. So let's go back uh, to Biden's speech one more time and listen to one more clip. I ran for president because I believe we're in a battle for the soul of this nation. I still believe that to be true. I believe the soul is the breath, the life, and the essence of who we are. The soul is what makes us us. The soul of America is defined by the sacred proposition that all are created equal in the image of God, that all are entitled to be treated with decency, dignity, and respect, that all deserve justice and a shot at lives of prosperity and consequence, and that democracy, democracy must be defended, for democracy makes all these things possible. Okay, so I encourage you to check out the full speech if you'd like. I think it's about 20-something minutes. Of course, there was a lot of consternation. A lot of Republicans were upset about it, and they called it his, you know, kind of red, scary, dark dark Brandon, I think was the, was the term that they used. Now, I will say this. So you might see on social media that the backdrop of the speech, there's like a red, this red uplighting on the building. That's because it's a close shot. But when you actually frame out, it's red, white, and blue. Uh, But it looks ominous if you're only looking at the close shot. But anyway, interesting times in America, to say the least. Will Democrats win in November? One thing might help them. Abortion and the reaction to the Dodds ruling. 60% of voters in a Wall Street Journal poll, which is certainly not seen as something that's liberal, 60% of voters said abortion should be legal in all or most cases, which is up from 55% in March. More than half of voters said the Dodds ruling made them even more motivated to vote in the midterm elections. And then when you break this down on party levels, who, which party is best able to handle abortion policy? 48% of people said Democrats, which is really interesting. And then 41% of independents said they trust Democrats more to handle abortion policy compared to Republicans. That is a huge, huge opportunity for Democrats to get their people out to vote, but then also to move independents to their side. I think independents really speak to where a lot of people are. Like, Keith, you seem to me like someone who's pretty close to an independent voter, right? Where sometimes you're like, Democrats, y'all are, y'all are, uh-uh, <laughs> right? 
But I do agree if I had to choose, I think a Democrat would handle abortion better. Right. You know. Yeah. And then what's interesting is support for abortion among Catholics has gone up. Now, Biden is a Catholic. Catholics are generally seen as very conservative on the on abortion. Support from black voters is up. Support from college educated women is up. That's a big deal because college educated women are also seen as a swing vote, as a vote to really a vote that Democrats can and should win. Here's a stat that folks should pay attention to. Only 11% of Republicans said abortion should be illegal in all cases. Yet, when you look at what happened with the Dodds ruling, there are a number of states where abortion is illegal. So, 62% of folks oppose an abortion ban at six weeks. That is what's on the books in Georgia. Um, And then 78% said that they are opposed to restricting access to contraception like Plan B. Again, what's happening on this abortion conversation is that the most conservative and folks who are using their religious beliefs to determine how they would move on a particular issue are ruling the conversation when in reality is the majority of people believe that abortion should be accessible, at least in some circumstances. So again, this is a real opportunity for Democrats to get independents on their side, to get women on their side, and we'll see what ends up happening. I mentioned in last week's episode that some Republicans have started scrubbing their campaign websites. So where they previously had very anti-abortion language on their websites, they're removing that so that when voters, potential voters go to their campaign sites, they don't see that, oh, yes, this congressperson in Arizona, maybe they're not so much against abortion. So just be mindful of that. All right. On to party poopers and party starters. Turn out the lights. The party's over. <laughs> the party is over. Close the gates. What? Party's over. Everyone go home. Are you sure you want to invite this party pooper to poop on your party? I'm the party pooper. All right. My party pooper this week is, this is a little bit of inside Democratic baseball. So I mentioned a few episodes ago that the Biden White House has put $375 billion in climate action spending, which is a big deal. The person that Biden has tapped to lead that effort is John Podesta. That name does not ring a bell. Podesta is a Democratic OG. He worked in the Clinton administration. He worked for Obama. He was Hillary Clinton's campaign manager. And if you're a millennial or zennial, uh, his claim to fame is that his Gmail account was hacked by Russians during the election and his emails were published by WikiLeaks. And there is no doubt that what happened directly led to the downfall of the Hillary Clinton campaign. That's how we got the transcripts of her speeches to Wall Street companies like Goldman Sachs. And it's also how we found out that Donna Brazil shared with Hillary a question to expect in her upcoming CNN town hall. Now, transcripts from her speeches were actually used during the debates to frame questions from the moderators. And then there was an email from Podesto that he sent to Clinton, a list of Latinos that she needed to personally reach out to and ask for her, ask for their support. The subject of his email to Hillary 
needy Latinos. Look, I'm sure John Podesta, <laughs> I'm sure John Podesta knows how to manage a complex operation. He's 73. He's worked under two administrations. He clearly understands government bureaucracy and how to deal with it and move around it. But all signs point to a disaster in the making with putting Podesta in charge of climate spending and actions. Like This is someone whose name has been tainted. He's 73. He's in retirement. I'm sure there are plenty of other people that the Biden administration could have picked to be in charge of this. And I, I just thought it was crazy. So between it, he's just a deeply divided partisan name. And there are other folks, I'm sure even younger, who could have taken this charge and done a great job with it. And John Podesta is not the person I would have picked if I were Biden. All right, on to party starters. This is a local one. I want to give a shout out to Partnership for Southern Equity. They are launching something called a Metro Atlanta Racial Equity Atlas. What is this? So according to their site, the goal of this is to actively dismantle systemic barriers to equity. And the, how they're going to do that is by using data. So data on household economics, uh, housing, health and the environment, education, all of this. So this will be a tool that can be used across the 13 county metro area. So as far north as Cherokee to as far south as Rockdale County. And the idea here is that this data will be used by government leaders by civic organizations and nonprofits to better determine how to move the racial equity lens and how to go from, you know, a city where you have a 4% chance in poverty, 4% chance of getting out of poverty to something higher. So they're going to be using 21 key indicators around race and ethnicity between economics and education and health. So they're going to kick that off this week. I think that's great. Um, I hope that the data is actually actionable and folks use it and we see some changes. I mean, there is even data around the Beltline, about child well-being, vaccine distribution, eviction trackers. And so all of this, but again, through the lens of racial equity. All right, y'all, that is today's show. If you have not already, please go check your voter registration status. Don't assume that you're still on the books. Go check it. Just go to the Secretary of State's website. Elections are coming up soon, soon, soon. Start to pay attention to what's going on with the candidates. Debates are going to be coming up in October. So take September to start to learn, October to hear those candidates, and then go vote. All right, y'all, that is today's show. Before we leave, i got to give a shout out to the GOAT, Serena Williams. Sad she couldn't get to 24, but she's the goat in my eyes. Until next time, thank you as always for listening to Where the Party At. Party at.